Praise God. Well, before I begin, um, uh, it's Brother Peter's last Sunday, so I asked him if he could come up. Um, and I've just asked him to testify uh, just for a couple of minutes on, um, on making disciples. So, Brother Peter, if you'd like to just come up and, and give us a final word. <laughs> Well, praise the Lord, everyone. Um, my apologies for not being here this morning. Um, much work to be done. And um, I love each of you. And um, you, all of you have a special place in our hearts. And um, one day we will be together again, either here or in glory. And um, it's for, for his kingdom. And uh, as Brother Rowan has, has, has mentioned, um, uh, I feel very honoured to be able to testify about what it involves in making disciples. Um, I shared a little bit about this last week, and um, I know time is of the essence. But my first encounter, being able to share... My testimony was with Pastor Glass. Some would know him, some would not. He gave me the opportunity to testify. And uh, just only 15 minutes, but it felt like an hour. But I was able to share. And my journey from there um, began to move forward in the will of God. And then I, I found myself on, on, a, on the ministry roster. And... In between those times of being blessed, being able to share the word of God, I, I made myself available to teach Bible studies. I made myself available to give back what I never had growing up. I came to the Lord when I was 27. Um, I was a bit messed up. But I wanted to invest in something that was eternal, something that was going to last the test of time. And... Um, there's a couple of questions here. Who has invested in you to make you a disciple? What did they do? And I, I give honour to Brother Turkington and Sister Paul. Um, they were my disciple makers. They're the ones that made me who I was. And as I testified last week, they kept knocking on the door. Even though I was home and Sister Pam used to say, Peter, I know you're in there. And the key to making disciples is not to give up on that person. You're going to have disappointments. People are going to say, I'm, I don't want to have a Bible study tonight. I don't want you to share the word of God with me. I remember many, many a times I'd, I'd come here after work and I would prepare and then I would be on the freeway to teach a Bible study. And I was living in Bullsbrook. No names mentioned. But I would get a text message. Sorry, we can't have a Bible study tonight. But it didn't distract me. I kept teaching the Bible studies. I kept going there every week, regardless on if, if I could see what was happening below the, in someone's heart. Because it's God that does the work. And to me personally, what, what, did, what, what impact did that have on my life? It made me more determined to share the word of God, to teach Bible studies. 
I remember my wife um, opening, uh, exploring God's word. And she goes, there's that many different colors in this book that you can tell that you've read it multiple times, many, many, many times. And there's, there's lines, and, and Emma can testify of this, lines and there's scribble and there's more scribble and more scribble. But I didn't give up. Um, the next one is, who have you invested in? And this young gentleman right here, Brother Jonathan, also Chi-Chi, Moses, Brother Fiston, and more than that. Not because of me, but I wanted to share the word of God. I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to, to help them on their journey the best way I could. And I began to teach Bible studies with, with Brother Jonathan. And I was privileged to be able to baptize him in Jesus' name. And when he came up out of the water, he was speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Because the word of God is alive. It's powerful. It pierces. It divides. So never ever give up when you're trying to disciple someone. Don't just teach a Bible study, see them get baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. That's just a part of it. There's more. And we want more in the kingdom of God. We need more laborers. And what impact did that have on their life, on Brother Jonathan's life? You look at this young man today. He's, he's discipling others. He's teaching the word of God. He's preaching the word of God. He's a licensed minister. And he's anointed of God to preach the word of God. And he's seeing life change. He's been overseas on missions trips. Not because of me. Not because of him. But he's made himself available. So I want to encourage the church. If you're teaching a Bible study and you have a heart to go after souls, don't give up when they say no. But be more determined. Like when you go fishing, you chuck the line out. You don't expect to catch a nice big barramundi, which I'll catch in broom, just off the wharf. I have to give it to my wife because I'm allergic. But be determined that you want to catch that fish. You want that fish in the kingdom of God. And you must do everything in your power to do it for Jesus Christ in these last days. God bless you, church. Praise God. Over the course of this um, series, we're going to have some other people come up and testify because it's not just me up here talking and telling you about all this. Um, Disciple making is real. There are real people, there are real lives that have been impacted and you can see um, generations in church, generations and lives and destinies changed because someone took the time to make a disciple. Praise God. I just want to thank... Um, we've actually, I, what, what, I was thinking, Brother Peter, I need to give you some advice. Go make disciples. Amen. Make disciples in Broome. Amen. Do what you did here and we'll see revival in the north. Praise God. Uh, I just want to thank Pastor and, and the church for an opportunity to, to minister. Uh, I know Pastor's been promoting this and he's really like hyped it up and then yeah, there's this series going on and Rowan's going to preach it. But I really hope it has generated some interest. Um, and some of you might be asking, you know, why, what am I doing up here? What is Disciple Makers? 
Um, you, you'll have me over the next three Sundays, and I, it's a three-part series, and I encourage you to be here for each of the parts because they, they lead on to one another. Um, it's similar to the series I've done in Bassendine last year, so you get a double blessing if you're in Bassendine. Um, I also want to thank uh, Sister Vanessa for the, the logo that she did up there. It, um, it's, it's In its simplicity, it really captures um, what it means to make disciples, and I will go through that. Um, uh, a bit later. So just to give you a little bit of context, um, where's all this come from? Like, what, was this? did Roland just wake up one Sunday morning and think, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll preach a three-part series on disciple-making. No, no, that's not what happened. I didn't, um, I didn't wake up and think that. It's something that really has, over the past year, God is revealing to me um, truths about making disciples, and he's been dealing with me personally and really convicting me in a lot of ways. He's caused me to think and to rethink about his mission and really got me to question about, well, Rowan, what are you doing? What are you doing with, with the Great Commission? And he has created this, uh, this passion um, and conviction within me and it's something that I, I really want to share. I really want to share um, so that you can feel convicted too, so we're all in the same boat. Um, I'll share the conviction around. <laughs> you know, I don't want to put you to sleep. Um, and one thing I can tell you now is this series is not intended to be a warm and fuzzy, lovely message, Brother Rowan. Great thoughts, great ideas. But there's an expectation there is an expectation that if God is going to speak to you, God is going to speak to you specifically. And when he speaks to you, there is an expectation of action. The conclusion of this series will involve a call to action. What is the point in hearing the word of God and not doing it? I believe, I truly believe that Jesus wants this church, Northside Pentecostal Church, to have an infectious disciple-making culture. I believe that God wants this church to have an infectious disciple-making culture. Amen? I've had COVID over the last week. I'm okay now. But it's infectious. <laughs> you know, everyone in our family got it. My in-laws got it. I just shared the love around. But imagine if that infectious um, infection could, could enter this church, that we are just so um, driven to make disciples. So part one, part one of this um, series is the value, the value of making disciples. So the mission, the mission of the UPCI, the, the international UPC church, is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. And our vision of Northside Pentecostal is go make disciples. And the vision, the vision is rooted in that scripture, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You'll all be familiar with it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Point to yourself and say, I need to be a disciple maker. And point to your neighbor and tell them, you need to be a disciple maker. 
If you remember anything, remember this. We are all called. We all need to make disciples. When Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 28, he had already risen from the dead and he was soon to ascend back into heaven. These were his last words. These last few words at the end of Matthew are known as the Great Commission. Commission simply means a command, the great command, the great order. The command to make disciples is how we love God and how we love others. Making disciples effectively is how we show love. And I found this so profound. 1 John chapter 5 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and what? We keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. This applies to the command by Jesus to make disciples in Matthew 28. Keeping and obeying is an act of love. We can't just be loving in words, but we must be loving in deeds by what we do. Love is a verb. Why? Because this process of making disciples, it is critical. It is critical for salvation. And therefore, it is critical for where we spend eternity. You know, we don't save people when we make disciples. Jesus saves. He made the sacrifice at Calvary. It's his blood that paid for our sins. But the command to make disciples is the role. It is a role that we play as partners with Christ in the salvation process. Jesus didn't give the command to the angels, but he gave it to us. It is you and I. We are the ones commanded to make disciples. So making disciples basically is love. It is love in action. So question, I like to ask questions because I want you to think. I don't want just me just talking all these things, but I want you to think, what does it mean? What does it mean to disciple? It simply means to teach. It means to instruct. It means to learn or understand. You see, Jesus, he's no longer here. He no longer walks the earth as a man when he was teaching and making disciples in towns all across Israel. Jesus ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to lead us and direct us in all truth. His truth is living in us, and that is what we must teach and instruct others. It is sharing the good news that we have with people, all the good news. It is sharing Jesus with those around us. Have any of you heard of a term called neuroplasticity? I'm sure Cass knows, knows about it, yeah? I'm sure she could probably come up here and tell us all about it. I'll give you a, a, a layman's understanding of what it is. If we could have that slide up. Um, not long ago, scientists believed that the brain did not change after childhood, that it was hardwired and fixed by the time we became adults. But recent advances in the last decade now tell us th- that this is not true. The brain can and does change throughout our lives. It is adaptable like plastic. Neuroscientists call this neuroplasticity. Think of your brain as this dynamic, connected power grid. There are billions of pathways or roads lighting up every time you think, feel, or do something. Just like the image above. Right now, as you sit here, there's all these pathways that are all connected and they're making connections. That's what you're doing. You're looking up at that and you're making connections. What's the connections in my brain? (laughs) Some of these roads are well-traveled. 
these are your habits, the things that you just, you know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do, brush your teeth, comb your hair, these established ways of thinking, feeling and doing, these certain emotions that we have, we just, when something happens, we automatically feel this way. There's a pathway that we just, we have. Every time we think a certain way, practice a particular task or feel an emotion, we strengthen these roads and it becomes easier for our brains to travel these pathways. Say we think about something differently, we learn a new task or choose a different emotion, we start carving out a new road. This road that never just existed before all of a sudden is now in our brain. And if we keep traveling this road, our brains begin to use this pathway more and more and more. And this new way of thinking, feeling or doing becomes our second nature. That old pathway that we used to take before gets used less and less and what happens is it weakens. And this process of rewiring our brain by forming new connections and weakening the old ones is neuroplasticity in action. The good news is that we have the ability to learn and change by rewiring our brains. And if you've ever changed a bad habit or thought about something differently, you've carved a new pathway in your brain and experienced neuroplasticity firsthand. With repeated and directed attention towards your desired change, you can rewire your brain. Is that okay, Cass? <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I, I gave you that explanation because it's important that we understand how our brains work. And by discipling people, what happens is there's, there's new pathways that are made in people's minds, in our minds. Even when we're discipling other people, we get new pathways made. We're not rewiring the brain. Um, it's actually the word of God that does it. Romans 12 said, it transforms by the renewing of your mind. Those people we disciple have ways of thinking that are contrary to the word of God. Their habits, and we can put ourselves in these baskets, their thoughts, their traits, their addictions, behaviors, characteristics that God wants to change. He wants to change these things in our lives. You know, if you've grown up and your parents always said, you're not good enough, you never get there, you'll never... That's a, that's a pathway that's been put into your brain over and over and over again. And God's saying, that's not true. I love you. That's not true. You can amount to something. That's not true. See, there's so many truths that we think are truths, but they're not. They're lies. And these pathways are so well trodden in our minds that we start to believe them. But it's not true. And so when we disciple people, we expose them. We expose them to the word of God. We expose them to Jesus. And he's the one that changes them. He is the truth. Amen? So when he, you, you expose them to Jesus, he reveals himself and they realize, my identity is not this. It is in Jesus. We're simply the conduit. We're the vessel, we're the tool, the mechanism that God uses to reach the lost. Think about it. We're just his hands. We're his feet. We're his mouth. God uses us. So who? Who can disciple? Sometimes um, when you think about a disciple, a disciple maker, you have this image of maybe you know, a missionary in this faraway land or Perhaps it's pastor, the pastor of this church. It's He's the disciple maker. Or it's the leaders, it's the ministers in this church. But making disciples is not reserved to the ministry. 
quote unquote. Making disciples is a personal responsibility for each of us. Why? Because I pointed out earlier, it is an outward reflection of love. Obeying Jesus' command. He didn't just say, just you 12 people make disciples, or just the priests up there, you make disciples. Everyone in the church must take on this responsibility. You know, there's something that happened along the way in the last 2,000 years of church history. I think it was around about the 3rd century, but you have these two groups, the laity, or the, just the general saints, and then you have the ministry. And there's this separation that happened where this command that Jesus gave, for some reason the laity said, well, I think that's for the ministry, quote-unquote. It's for the priests, it's the deacons, the, the, the church professionals are the ones that will make the disciples. And the laity outsource the command. And it's something that we do in, in our culture in Australia. You know, we outsource everything. If you call Virgin Australia, you don't talk to someone in Australia, you talk to someone in the Philippines or in India. Everything's outsourced. You know, the care for the elderly, um, we care for, our ch- care for the kids, um, uh, the professionals do our taxes, you know, the farmers grow our food. And this is not a criticism of, of um, our life in modern-day Australia. It's just an observation. You know, I'm, I don't want to buy seeds and plant veggies and water them and grow my own food because my family won't survive very long because everything will die. Um, I, you know, we need the farmers. We need the tax professionals. We need people to take care of our children and all these things. But that same attitude does not work for making disciples. That's not how Jesus set up the church. And the responsibility of making disciples cannot be outsourced. Being a disciple maker is everybody's responsibility. So point to yourself and say, it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility, me. We pray on Wednesday night and one of the um, prayer points is um, a personal responsibility to make disciples. So to help you understand, I want to talk about the conversion of Saul. It's a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, Saul had this Damascus Road experience. He um, was struck down and was blinded, and Jesus revealed himself to Saul. And um, he was blinded for three days, and, and um, then God gave a vision to um, Ananias in Acts 9.10 and said, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, behold, I am here, Lord. And the key I want you to focus on this scripture is a certain disciple at Damascus. Certain, one of a kind, unique. You know, there were other disciples. There, there may have been other more qualified disciples, but God didn't place them there. God didn't place Peter or Paul or P- Peter or John or James or any of the other 12 disciples in Damascus. It was Ananias's role. See, just like Ananias, you are unique. You are one of a kind at a specific location for a purpose. You are the particular person with a set of talents, of time and treasure that God can use. Who who will reach the teenagers? Who will reach the married, the single? 
Who will reach the elderly, the indigenous? Who will reach the students? Who will reach the rich and the poor? Who will reach the sick? Who will reach your neighbours? Who is going to reach your children? Who is going to disciple them? I can tell you now, it's not pastor. And it's not me. It's you. You are the certain person at that certain place. Your life stage, whether you're married, whether you're single, whatever age you are, the personality that you are, the faith that you have, your life circumstances, your life journey and experiences, your walk with Jesus, those unique things about you, God will use you. There was a certain disciple, and you are that certain disciple today. And Ananias, Ananias was at Damascus. There was a specific location. Sure, there were other disciples around in Jerusalem, or Caesarea, Nazareth, or Galilee. But Ananias was there, and God used him. And you, you are here. You are here in Malaga. You are here in Ellenbrook, Marangaroo, Balga, Midland, Southern River, wherever you are, Perth, Australia, you are here. And there are disciples in Sydney, in Melbourne, in the US, in the UK that are much more qualified, but they're not here. You're here. Perth is your Damascus. And Saul is here. And just like Ananias, you are uniquely placed by God to show him Jesus. You are uniquely placed by God to show them Jesus. So who can, who can disciple? It is you. Acts 9 says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And, he, and here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Paul, Ananias knew who Paul was. There was this sense of fear, of trepidation from his response. His, God, Saul's here to kill me. You know, are you sure? It's, it's Saul. He's slaying Christians. He knew what was going on. And don't we all have fears? And don't we all have insecurities? God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not qualified enough. I haven't been to Bible school. I'm not experienced enough. You've given me these children. I don't know how to disciple them. I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. We go through these things, these thoughts. I can't do it. But when God opens a door, he will help you. He will equip you. If he's given you a responsibility, if, if he's given you the command, he'll give you the ability to do it. Just obey. It's obeying his word. That is the key. And that is what Ananias did. Acts 9.17 said, And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, had, that appeared unto thee in the way thou camest, has sent me, and thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. See, the person God has called you to disciple, they could be, be, become a pastor, an apostle, an evangelist. You don't know what God's call may be on their life, on their ministry, or the purpose God has for their life. But we, you and I, we, we can become partners with God. Ananias wouldn't have realized the, 
the impact Paul's life had on billions of people. We talk about Paul today. And it started with his obedience, Ananias' obedience. He saw a man who persecuted church, the church, this present man who, who could take his life. But Jesus saw more. Jesus saw what could become of that man. And when I was thinking about this, when it really comes down to it, it's not so much about them and what they may, may become, whether they become this apostle or evangelist or whether they become Peter or Mary or Mark, like these big giant saints. It's deeper than what they do. It's the fact that they will, be, they will know Jesus, that they would know truth, that, and the truth will set them free. And that is the joy. That is the true joy that a sinner is freed from bondage because they know Christ. When they are no longer blind, but they see. And they know the good news. And the key, the key, and Brother Peter talked about this, um, is we must invest. We must invest in people. We must invest in our children. Where your treasure is, so will there be your heart. These investments, they last for eternity. So I want to ask you the question, am I investing in people? Are you investing in people? Matthew chapter 6 says, verse 19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Someone invested in you. You know, they saw a return. For me, I know the many hours that my mum, that my dad, that they invested in, in praying for me, the many hours they invested in teaching me the right things, in being the right example, in showing the way, in taking me to church. Jesus, he invested in us. He died for us so that we could live. He set to, that we could be set free from sin. He didn't sacrifice his life for an animal or for a tree. The cross that was for you and it was for me. His blood was shed because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy... The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I, we were the joy that was set before him. We were the reason that he endured the cross. You and I, we are in his kingdom. And there is a need to train up disciples in this kingdom. It's not a political battle. The reason the Jews rejected him, because even to this day, that they were looking... And they still are looking for a political leader, one that would overthrow the Romans. See what Jesus tells Pilate, the ruler of the Romans, in John 18. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is eternal. And we, we as a church, we need to invest in people. Uh, Matthew thirteen forty-five to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man 
seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The disciples that we make here on earth are an eternal investment. These treasures that they are priceless, the pearl of great price. We must sell all we have and buy it and invest in our children and invest in people. I just want to tell a story. A man named Easy Eddie. Um, the 19, if we can have that last that slide up. In the 1920s, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. He was notorious for corrupting the Windy City with everything from bootlegging to prostitution to murder. Capone had an, a lawyer na- nicknamed Easy Eddie. Eddie was Capone's lawyer for a really good reason. He was very good. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal manoeuvring kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid Eddie very well. Not only was the money big, but Eddie and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with living help and all of the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocities that went on around him. But Eddie did have one soft spot, a family he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had clothes, cars, a good education. Money was no object. And despite this, his involvement with organised crime, Eddie even tried to teach him the right, th- right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was. Yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things he couldn't give his son, a good name and a good example. One day, Eddie reached a difficult decision. He wanted to rectify the wrongs he had done. He decided he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Capone. He decided he would clean up his own tarnished name and offer his son some integrity. To do this, he would have to testify against the mob, which he knew would cost him dearly. Not long after he testified against them, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. Easy Eddie, he had all the money in the world, the biggest house, he lacked nothing. He was set. He didn't have to change anything. But there was something that this man valued more than anything in this world, and that was his son. For the sake of his son, he turned his life around. And in the process, he lost his life. He sacrificed his life for his son. Matthew 16 says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever shall lose, shall save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Reverend uh, Stan Gleason from Kansas City, he's an uh, assistant superintendent of the UPC USA. He preached at a discipleship course in Singapore about taking up our cross. And what he was saying I found quite profound. 
the point that he was making was that what if our cross is not the sore knee that we have or the sickness that we're going through? What if our cross is not the high blood pressure or our financial problems? What if the cross is not our trials or our circumstances or our problems? What if our cross is not something that you're going through, but rather it is a person? What if our cross is a human being, a person that doesn't know Jesus, a work colleague who's going through a divorce, a family member who is dying from cancer? What cancer? What if our cross is a neighbor who is struggling with loneliness, a mother struggling with depression, a father lost in addiction? What if our cross is our children and our grandchildren, a newborn saint that comes into church? What if our cross is a person that we have to carry every day? What if the cross is a person, your son, your daughter, the person that God has called you to disciple today. We are investing in his kingdom by discipling people. His kingdom come. His will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. His will that none should be lost. That is his will. It's important that we understand the value of people, the value that Jesus placed on our life. And does Does he find us? Does he find us? Does he find me teaching? Does he find me investing and making disciples? Or does he find me distracted by the treasures of life, by everything else in life, but not the people that he's called me to disciple? I'd like to close with the story of a man named Butch O'Hare. If I could just ask a musician to come up. Um, The Second World War produced many heroes. One such man was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. We've got the photo up there, a fighter pilot. He was assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. After he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realised that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His squadron leader told him to return to the carrier, so he reluctantly dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. As he was returning to the mothership, he saw something. He turned his that he saw something that turned his blood cold. There was a squadron. A squadron of Japanese aircraft was speeding its way towards the American fleet. His colleagues were away on a sortie and The fleet was all but defenceless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. There was only one thing he could do. He must somehow divert them from the fleet. Laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, Butch dived. He dived into the formation of Japanese planes with wing-mounted 50-caliber guns blazing, attacking one surprised enemy plane after another. In wave in, he wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired as many planes as was possible until all his ammunition was used up. Undaunted, he continued to assault the dive, uh, diving planes, um, assault the planes by diving at them, trying to clip a wing or a tail in the hope that he could damage as many as possible, rendering them unable to fly. 
Finally, exasperated, the Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he relayed the events surrounding his return. The film from the gun camera mounted on his plane told a tale and showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had destroyed five enemy aircraft. This event took place on the February 20th, 1942. And for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of the Second World War and the first naval aviator to win the Medal of Honor. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of their hero to fade. And today, if you fly into Chicago, the airport is called Chicago O'Hare Airport in tribute to his courage. And his statue and Medal of Honor is located between Terminals 1 and 2. So you're probably thinking, great story, what does that mean? How do I piece this together? Well, you see, if we can get that next slide up, Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. See, the sacrifice, the Easy Eddie, it was an example for Butch. He had a father who displayed courage and integrity, repentance. A father that valued his son above his own life. A father that wanted his son to have a better life than he did. A father that sacrificed his life for his son. This example of real, real love. And then we see a son who learned from his father's example, a man who displayed courage, a man who displayed integrity. It was a son who was willing to sacrifice his life for his friends. An example of real love. You and I, we have a father. Amen? We have a father who sacrificed his life for us. You and I, we have a son who sacrificed his life for his friends. And so, it doesn't end there. You and I, we are called to sacrifice our lives for those that we disciple, for those that God has called us to disciple. If we could stand. This evening, I beseech you, Paul uses those words, I beseech you to catch, catch that vision. To be a disciple maker. To lose your life. So that you will gain it. Because what a reward, what a reward it will be when we get to heaven. What a reward it will be when we get to heaven and we see our sons and we see our daughters. We see those that we have reached, that we have taught, that we have discipled, those that we have invested in. We see them in the clouds of glory. Then it will be worth it. This is the value of being a disciple maker. 
This is the vision Jesus wants us to take a hold of. It's about people. It's about people, our children, those around us, those in church, those outside church, our family, our friends, those broken people that need Jesus in their lives. I want to open the altars this this evening. Specifically, if God has placed someone on your heart, please come. Come and pray for them. Maybe there's not someone specific, but if you have a burden to disciple someone, please come and pray. If you have a child, you are the one responsible for discipling them. Come. You can pray for them. This is time for you to spend with Jesus. This is time for you to bring someone to Jesus. Pray to God that he would create a fire in your heart, a burden, a desire for people, for souls, that we would see this church explode, that we would see lives changed, that we would see his kingdom come and his will be done in our lives and the lives of this city. Church, it's about people. Pray for someone. Hallelujah, Jesus.